I'd like to now read uh, some more from the book of Daniel. Uh, This time, uh, it's from Daniel chapter 9, and it's starting at verse 1. In the first year of Darius, son of Exes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed. O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with all who love him and obey his commands. We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. The men of Judah and people of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far, in all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. O Lord, we and our kings, our princes and our fathers, are covered with shame because we have sinned against you. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, Even though we have rebelled against him, we have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the laws he gave us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. You have fulfilled the words spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing upon us great disaster. Under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us. Yet we have not sought the favour of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. The Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does, yet we have not obeyed him. Now, O Lord our God, who has brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day, we have sinned, we have done wrong. O Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, Turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and the iniquities of our fathers have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, O Lord, look with favour on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, O God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy, O Lord. 
listen. O Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your sake, O my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. Amen. Thank you, Marian. Can I say thank you to Hannah and Clemmy for helping us lead worship today and welcome back Bob it's great to see you on the keyboard if I can say that on behalf of everybody here this morning can I also clarify for Dales Down next week Carol does need the names of people who are going we can't just turn up I'm afraid Dales Down do need names in advance if you're thinking of coming please do have a word with Carol this morning before you go thank you I can remember uh, as a teenager waiting for ages and ages and ages to catch a number 57 bus from Streatham to Kingston so I could get home after staying with a friend for a few days. Time passed. No buses were coming. And eventually someone came to the bus stop and said, you're waiting for 57? I said, yes. He said, they aren't running. There's been some kind of incident on the route and you will wait, you know, till the end of tonight and the bus won't come. You'll have to come home a different way. So we figured out I could catch a bus to Tolworth and then a bus to somewhere else and then it was a matter of ringing my mum from a distance from home saying, this is what happened, please can you come and pick me up. Those were the days before mobile phones. And the days before bus stops had electronic signs that tell you, this is when the next bus is coming. Stations have signs that tell you how long it is till the next train. I know it doesn't always work on Southern, but nevertheless, that's the principle we work on. These days you can track parcels on the internet, see when they've left the warehouse, when they're due to arrive. These days, in many respects, uncertainty about when the bus or the train or a parcel is going to arrive, all that is gone because we live in the age of the World Wide Web and electronic communications. So when it comes to prayer requests, you might think it's about time God moved up a gear and enter the 21st century with everything else. When am I going to get an answer to this prayer? Wouldn't it be convenient if you could log on and see what was happening? Though it might be discouraging to see your prayer is number 28,978,045 in the queue, but at least you'd have an idea about where you stand. You'd at least know where it got there. After all, sometimes when you pray... How can you be sure that the prayer has left your drafts folder and arrived in God's inbox? How can you tell? You can't, really. If nothing happens, how long do you wait before sending a reminder? I mean, if you believe that God answers prayer, does that mean once you've prayed, you simply close the book and leave it for him to sort out? Is that a sign of faith? Or is faith better shown by badgering God and refusing to give him peace? until something happens. Why is the timing of God's prayer so difficult to pin down anyway? There's a little verse which says, God has perfect timing. Never early, never late. It takes a little patience, and it takes a lot of faith, but it's worth the wait. Well, that bit about needing patience and faith is spot on, but is God's timing really always perfect? As we heard earlier in the service, Daniel was a man of prayer. And the first six chapters of Daniel are great, edifying, faith-building stories of Daniel and the lions, Daniel and other stuff, exploits of him and his friends. Chapter 7 
consisted of an amazing heavenly vision that Daniel has, portraying how God is in control of world history, charting the rise and fall of successive empires until his kingdom comes. And then in chapters 8 to 12, you really do get bogged down in a confusing range of prayers and visions, which unless you have a fairly good knowledge of events which took place in the period between the Old and the New Testament, are going to be largely incomprehensible. And if truth be told, we have limited value for us today, unless it turns out, as some people believe, that these these are also detailed prophecies of the end times. So be warned. If you venture into the second half of the book of Daniel, you are entering one of the most obscure and difficult parts of the Bible. But part of what these chapters are about is making sense of God's timing. Marion read Daniel 9, section of it earlier. I'm going to read uh, 14 verses of Daniel 10 at this point. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a revelation was given to Daniel, who was called Belteshazzar. Its message was true, and it concerned a great war. The understanding of the message came to him in a vision. At that time, I, Daniel, mourned for three weeks. I ate no choice food, No meat or wine touched my lips, and I used no lotions at all until the three weeks were over. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, the Tigris, I looked up, and there before me was a man dressed in linen, with a belt of the finest gold around his waist. His body was like chrysolite, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and his voice like the sound of a multitude. I, Daniel, was the only one who saw the vision. The men with me didn't see it, but such terror overwhelmed them that they fled and hid themselves. So I was left alone, gazing at this great vision. I had no strength left. My face turned deathly pale, and I was helpless. Then I heard him speaking, and as I listened to him, I fell into a deep sleep, my face to the ground. A hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He said, Daniel, you who are highly esteemed, consider carefully the words I'm about to speak to you and stand up, for I have now been sent to you. And when he said this to me, I stood up, trembling. Then he continued, Do not be afraid, Daniel. Since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia, Now I've come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future, for the vision concerns a time yet to come. Take, for example, then, this incident where Daniel prays for three weeks. In that period of mourning, he eats no choice food, no meat or wine touches his lips. He didn't anoint himself with oil for the whole time. At the end of that period, he would have been hungry, dirty, and smelly. But on the 24th day of the month, he looks up and has this vision of an angel which is so terrifying that his strength deserts him. He's left paralysed with fear. 
The blood drains from his head, he falls into a trance. It's only when the angel touches him that Daniel finds the courage to rise, trembling to his knees, and then to get to his feet. Did his fasting prepare him for the vision? Maybe. In his weakened state, was his mind susceptible to having tricks played on it? Maybe. It all depends on your perception of what is going on here. But what is fascinating is that Daniel is told that as soon as he humbled himself and started praying before God, this angel was sent on his way to meet him. But inexplicably, his his mission was delayed by the prince of the Persian kingdom, who resisted him for 21 days. And he was only able to get through in the end when Michael, one of the chief angels, came to lend him a hand. In other words, the answer to prayer would have been instantaneous, but there was this kind of obstruction that needed to be dealt with, and this angel needed Michael to come and sort it out. What is going on here? Entire edifices of slightly questionable theology have been erected on the shaky foundation of this passage. Does every nation of the world have an angel assigned to it? Well, maybe it does. Maybe it does, but we need to be humble in terms of what we do and what we don't know here. When we pray, unseen above our heads is a cosmic battle going on as relief columns of angels that have been dispatched to our aid have to fight their way through opposing forces before they can reach us. Well, maybe so. But again, we need to be humble in terms of what we do and what we don't know. Do we catch a glimpse here of what is really going on behind the scenes when we pray? Maybe so, and it's worthwhile being aware of that whole spiritual dimension. But if we do envisage a cosmic battle between God and the devil, it's clear that the devil is a defeated foe, but he still has the capacity to cause a lot of damage and harm, suffering and death, before he is finally conquered for good and all. So sometimes... Delays in getting answers to our prayers may be the result of some kind of spiritual struggle which is beyond our comprehension and way outside our control. Just be aware of that dimension of things. But the message to us is plain enough. If we are feeling beleaguered, we are to hang on. We are to stand our ground. We are to keep struggling on in prayer and not give up because relief is on its way. Daniel, the day you started to pray, I was sent to sort your situation out, says the angel. So it's not that God hasn't heard. It may just be that there's other stuff he needs to deal with in order to sort our situation out. The important thing is, don't give up. And that was an important message at the point in time where this vision is set in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, because that was a year of real setbacks for God's people. When Cyrus came to the throne in his first year, magic. He released God's people from exile in Babylon, sent them home with instructions and resources to rebuild God's temple in Jerusalem. Wow, God was amazing. God had sorted their situation. And the people came home, dazed but exuberant at what had happened, and they set to work. But they encountered fierce local opposition to the project from the people who were living in the land. And in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the work of rebuilding the temple ground to a halt. That was why Daniel spent those three weeks in mourning and fasting 
and prayer. Because there was a sense in which his picture of the heavenly conflict between the angel and the prince of Persia reflected the administrative chaos of running a newly constituted empire. God may have put it in the heart of the emperor to order the rebuilding of the temple, but there were plenty of local Persian officials who had the authority and the capability, if they so chose, to stop that happening. And they did. Setting these events against the background of a cosmic conflict, Daniel makes us aware that government maladministration may not just be a result of incompetent bureaucracy, but there may also be an element of spiritual interference and misinformation about it. That's why we are called to pray for the hearts and the minds and the wills of those who govern, and for those government departments which have the capacity either to get the job done or to bungle it completely because there is that spiritual dimension behind what is going on at a government level. That said, the answer that Daniel receives to his prayer has nothing to do with the immediate situation of rebuilding the temple. It's all about stuff that's going to happen in the dim and distant future in chapters 10 to 12 of the book. So if we don't get an answer to prayer immediately, it may be because of this conflict in the cosmos that's going on above our heads. If that's happening, can the purposes of God ever be frustrated in the end? Daniel would say, no, they can't. Because above and beyond everything else, God is sovereign and his will ultimately cannot be frustrated or overturned. God will have his way because God's in charge. It's not a finely balanced conflict where it could go either way. God is sovereign. It's one of the reasons why we can trust him. His will cannot be frustrated or overturned. So in the previous chapter, chapter 9, which Marion read to us, that's a long, sustained prayer of confession, along the same lines as the prayers of Nehemiah and Jeremiah that we looked at over the past couple of weeks. Initially, I thought we might look at Daniel 9 together, but you can overdose on spiritual austerity sometimes. There is some uncertainty as to the identity of Darius, the son of Xerxes, mentioned at the beginning of chapter 9. If, as some argue... This figure is the same as Cyrus, king of Persia, mentioned in chapter 10. Then the events of chapter 9 take take place two years before chapter 10, before the command has been issued to rebuild the ruined temple. In which case, Daniel is lamenting the destruction of Jerusalem, the people in exile, the temple lies in ruins. If Darius in chapter 9 is Darius the Great, then we're looking at a period 18 years after the work on the temple is ground to a halt and nothing has happened for those 18 years. And so the temple still lies in ruins and Daniel is still imploring God, God, this is a disgrace. Please come and sort out the mess that your people are in. In Daniel 9, Daniel is puzzled. He's reading the prophet Jeremiah and he sees that Jeremiah says that the exile is going to last 70 years. What does that mean? How does that work? God, what are you doing? It's a tricky one because actually the exile only lasted 49 years, which is a bit of a problem with Jeremiah's prophecy. Though it was exactly 70 years from the time when the temple was destroyed to the time when the temple was rebuilt, 587 to 517 BC. So does the 70 years actually refer to the the time the temple is in ruins rather than the exile? Is there kind of room for manoeuvre there? Did Jeremiah kind of part way get it right? 
But as Daniel thinks and prays, you've got this business where, well, the, the exile is 49 years. Well, that's seven times seven. So maybe Jeremiah's 70 years was kind of 70 weeks of years. And if you take off the seven years for the exile, that leaves you 70 minus 7 is 63. 63 weeks of years. And if you count 63 times 7 years from the date when Jeremiah first talked about the exile lasting 70 years, you get to 164 BC. And that's a, that's a big year for the Jews because that's the year in which Antiochus Epiphanes dies after seven years of struggle. And he's tried to destroy the Jewish nation and he meets his sticky end. So, actually, you know, take off the seven years, 63, 63 times seven, you get to a crucial date in Israelite history. So by dint of some nifty arithmetic, Daniel's prophecy can be seen to have remarkable relevance to events taking place in the land of Israel in the second century BC, a long way off in the future. So people did this, they kind of poured over numbers and dates and prophecies, trying to figure out actually how everything happens in accordance with God's appointed timetable. In which case, delays to answer prayer are simply the fact that it's not the right time yet. The temple was going to be rebuilt after 70 years. So don't stress at the fact that it hasn't happened yet because God's appointed time has not yet arrived. God knows the future. He has charted our history. Everything has a season. Everything happens in accordance with God's schedule rather than ours. And that's tough for us because with the Lord, a thousand years is as one day and one day is as a thousand years. Not easy to predict then from that point of view. Does all that seem a little bit contrived? Maybe. But it's all part of trying to make sense of the inexplicable mystery of God's timing. And we can't see, stuck as we are, on this particular day, in this particular year, what lies in the future. But the perspective is that God is in charge of history, and the future is under his control. And he hasn't forgotten where you are in your little situation and your needy prayer, but God is aware of the bigger picture of which we are ignorant. And his answer to your prayer, that just needs to fit in with everything else in the grand scheme and master plan. So trust him. Because at the right time, he will come through for you. So if, you, if when you pray, nothing happens, be patient and don't stop praying. Who knows why there's a delay? Do we just have to wait until it's the right time for our prayers to be answered? Sometimes. Do we have to wait until some kind of cosmic skirmish has been fought before the angel assigned to our case can break through and get to us? Maybe. The book of Daniel posits both scenarios. And we may never know whether these or other reasons lie behind the time it takes for answers to our prayers to come through. It's difficult for us. We live in an instant society where we can send messages around the world in a flash and Google can supply us with millions of results to an inquiry in the time it takes us to blink. God seems very inefficient by comparison to that when it comes to answering our prayers. But if you read the small print, he never promised next day delivery. Sometimes we need to learn a little patience, have a lot of faith, build up resources of endurance, sometimes waiting 
builds character. So hang on in there. God may take his time, but he will come through for you in the end. Because he knows where you're at. And he's faithful. Let's pray. Lord, we all have things that we have been praying for, some of us for years, for decades. Keep high in our minds the things we should be praying for. Enable us to put our trust in you when it seems that nothing's happening. Help us to be patient when it's a matter of waiting for your timing. Give us confidence that nothing can frustrate your good and perfect will because you are sovereign. And though we don't really understand, if we're honest, how our prayers play their part in bringing about your purposes. You've told us to be faithful in prayer. So show us how to pray. Give us faith and trust and confidence. Keep us from ever taking answers to prayer for granted when they come. But for those things that trouble us, we lift them to you. We entrust them to you. Because we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, and our Lord, the one to whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been given. <coughs>